Well, good morning, and welcome to what is probably the final Bible talk of 2023. Uh, just to remind you, I said this last week, but it bears repeating, that uh, you know, with Christmas and New Year's and all that coming up, uh, we're going to take a little bit break here from these weekly Bible talks. Additionally, I'm going to take a break from the book of Exodus. We've been in Exodus uh, actually the entirety of 2023. I didn't realize that until I checked that, um, and frankly, we've been in Exodus longer than I realized. I you know, had you asked me to guess how many weeks we've been in Exodus, I would have thought, I don't know, 15, 20. Uh, actually, if I have my figures correct, today is the 30th Bible talk through the book of Exodus. And we began it back in uh, January of 2023. So it does seem kind of appropriate to conclude it now, take a couple of weeks off with the holidays and whatnot, uh, and then pick up with a new book in January. Uh, like I've mentioned, the hope is to begin a New Testament, new testament epistle. Uh, you know, the New Testament epistles all the, are the letters that Paul, Peter, John, um, and whoever wrote Hebrews wrote. Uh, so if you've got any desire there, any interest there, uh, feel free to comment on the Facebook page or on the Summary Audio page. I'll definitely take your comments into consideration as we think about where to go next. Um, the, the approach I've taken with bigger books of the Bible, such as Exodus, uh, in recent years is to preach a section, take a break, and then come back a couple of years later. You'll remember we did this with the book of Mark uh, in these Bible talks. I think we went through about half of Mark. We're going to take a little break, and then Lord willing, uh, you know, if the Lord wills. All, all of this is under the sovereignty of God. You know, I, I could, uh, as soon as I finish this Bible talk, drop dead from a heart attack. Now I Certainly pray that doesn't happen, but you know, whenever you plan like this, like James 5 says, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. Uh, so who knows what will take place, but the plan is that in the new year uh, to start working our way through a New Testament epistle. Now to quickly set the context here for Exodus 15, so get your Bibles open to Exodus 15, we're looking at a worship service right after the crossing of the Red Sea. You may not have realized that because I don't think that either the Ten Commandments movie or the Prince of Egypt movie included these, uh, th th this event in their retelling of the Exodus event. But after they cross the Red Sea, after they see the Egyptians destroyed in the waters, uh, you know, God has worked a miraculous deliverance, what do they do but come together in worship? And this would have been a massive worship gathering uh, indeed. We think that Roughly 2 million people came out of Egypt in the Exodus. Uh, you know, maybe more, maybe less. Uh, additionally, there were Gentile nations who kind of came with them, who, who came to embrace Jehovah with saving faith. So who knows how big this congregation was, but it was massive. And Moses leads them in a song of praise. And as we talked about last week, uh, they're praising God primarily for his judgment uh, of their enemies and his enemies. I, I remind you that in the Bible there is a connection between God's enemies and the people of God's enemy. Uh, they're, they're almost interchangeable. Now, not always. I'm not talking about in your personal life. You know, if you can't get along with your boss or something like that, that doesn't necessarily mean he's an enemy of God. But, you know, in the grand plan of redemption, Egypt not only opposed the Hebrews, but, he all, uh, but Egypt also opposed the Lord. So also the devil not only tempts and afflicts us, he's also God's great enemy. Um, and as God conquers our enemies, he's also conquer, conquering his enemies in the process. There is a connection there between God and his people. Anyway, um, let me pray, and then we're going to pick up in verse 13. Like I mentioned last week, verse 13 until verse about 18 or so is actually a prophecy. The, the, uh, this whole song here that Moses leads them in singing is rather fascinating. Verses 1 through 12 recount all that God has done, particularly his righteous judgment. But verse 13 through 18 actually turns to a prophecy and describes what God is going to do as they take possession of the promised land, uh, which, you know, if you know the rest of the Bible story, that takes place under Joshua. Let's pray and then we'll dive into Exodus 15. 
Almighty God, we praise you for your word. We love your word. Your word is refreshing water to our dry, weary souls. Your word is light to our darkened, blind minds. Uh, your word is food for our faith, uh, which nourishes us and sustains us. And we thank you, Lord, for the way that your entire word points us to our need for Jesus and your gracious supply in giving us Jesus. He is our great God and Savior. He is the one who has come and saved his people from their sins. We thank you so much for him. Do move in our hearts that we might delight in him more, desire to surrender more and more of our lives to him, desire to tell others about him. Lord, help us now as we meditate on Exodus 15 here. Give us your Spirit's illumination. Give us conviction. Give us repentance. Uh, renew our minds. Give us faith in your word that we might be doers of your word, not hearers only. Help us to hear your voice addressing us through this passage. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, beginning in verse 13, God's word says, You have led in your steadfast love the people you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now pause there. Um, if you think about it, what Moses is saying here hasn't yet been accomplished. They're just on the other side of the Red Sea. They're not yet in the holy abode. Now, what's the holy abode? I go back, I know that's kind of weird language. We don't talk that way today. You know, where is your abode? Um, what this is referring to is the land that God promised to Abraham. If you go back about 600 years previous to this, back around 2000 BC, God made these precious promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, you'll remember these, the promises to Abraham really function as almost like the, uh, the, the great, you know those bands that go around a barrel? Uh, that's almost the way in which the promises to Abraham function in the Bible. They hold everything together. And to Abraham, what did God promise? First, the promised land, this gigantic parcel of land going from uh, basically the Tigris and Euphrates and swinging all the way down to the uh, Nile River. All of that was promised to uh, the people of Israel. Additionally, not only the land, but seed, like innumerable descendants, as many as the stars in the heavens and as the sand on the seashore. Uh, and ultimately, a blessing. In one of your seeds, uh, one of your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So those are the three main promises, and yet they're not fulfilled at this particular time in history. Again, Israel is just on the other side of the Red Sea, but Moses is able to say, you have led them to your holy abode. Now this is something the Bible does when we come to prophecy. Uh, prophecy is sometimes worded in the past tense, even though it hasn't taken place yet. I recognize this is weird to us, you know, we in modern English don't talk this way, but the idea seems to be that the fulfillment of these prophecies is so certain that you can speak of them as if they've already taken place. We've got an example of this in Romans 8, when it says, those whom he predestined, he also called, those whom he also called, he justified, those whom he justified, he sanctified, and those whom he sanctified, he glorified. Remember this passage? Now, if you look at that glorified section, uh, the saints haven't been glorified yet. You know, we still, those of us who, who live in this world, we still live in these corrupt, sin-cursed bodies in this sin-cursed world. Uh, that glorification is awaiting Jesus' return and our resurrection. And yet, it's so certain that it's going to take place that Paul writes about it as if it's in, in the past tense, as if it's already taken place. You follow me? Actually, there's a lot of prophecy like that, that uh, describes it as if it had already taken place. Uh, Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement which brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we have been healed. Now, in Isaiah 53, uh, Jesus hasn't, you know, he hasn't even been born yet. Isaiah's about 700 B.C., um, 
Jesus is going to come, and obviously born roughly 5 B.C., you know, live and do all these miracles and then die roughly 30 A.D., and yet the prophecy is so certain in its fulfillment that Isaiah can speak of it in the past tense. Um, maybe just get used to this when you're reading the Bible. Again, it's a little different from how we speak in English, but the Bible talks this way all the time. Uh, when it's a prophecy, and I, and I think the idea is that God's faithfulness is so certain that you, you can speak of it as if it's an already uh, established fact. Um, you know, again, hopefully you're grasping what I'm trying to explain. I think you will get it as you read the Bible more and more. You'll see these prophecies that are in, you know, Isaiah. Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, Zechariah, whatever, and they're all in the past tense, and yet you start carefully looking at them, and they're describing events that are like thousands of years in the future, uh, you realize what's going on. God's faithfulness is so secure that we can look at it as if it's an already established fact. Does that make sense? Anyway, coming back to the passage here. You have guided them to, by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Uh, Philistia actually lived, they, they lived in the area of Gaza, which if you're following the news is you know, kind of a big deal right now. You'll know the uh, war in Israel is currently going on and they've invaded Gaza, very same area where the Philistines lived. Incidentally, this is just sort of a free aside, the term Palestine is derived from the term Philistine. Um, you know how languages, you know, as a word goes throughout the uh, hundreds of years, it kind of morphs and changes. Uh, but our modern term Palestine is actually derived from the Philistines, and the Philistines did live in that Gaza area. Uh, so what Moses is saying is that the nations have heard the great things that you have done. And we'll see this when we get again to the book of uh, Joshua, which I don't know, if, I don't have any intentions right now to get to Joshua in these Bible talks. But what happens when the uh, spies encounter Rahab? Uh, they say, we've all heard what the Lord did through Moses and how he conquered Egypt and led you out. Um, so the rumor is getting around. People are hearing of God's great works through his people, uh, and, and they're scared. They're trembling. I think there's something similar that ought to take place in our lives, that as God changes us, as God blesses us, as God works in our individual lives, our families, our churches to transform us, uh, the other nations will hear and they'll take notice and either be drawn to the light or they'll be you know, even, even harsher, uh, more severely dri driven away. I heard a wonderful testimony yesterday. We're interviewing some folks for baptism, which Lord willing will you know, do in the next uh, week or two here. Um, but this individual, who he, he said he attended a public school all his life, but one of the things that really grabbed his attention was just the dramatic difference between the kindness of the people he encountered at church compared to the uh, lack of kindness that he encountered in public school. And that really spoke to him, and the Lord used that to kind of get a hold of his heart for the Lord. I thought that was really uh, encouraging and touching, um, especially, you know, because it's in my church that we're talking about. Um, you know, all praise to God. It's not anything at all due to me. I'm just, you know, the wicked sinner that, you know, teaches the Bible, and God, you know, works through his word. Uh, but anyway, that's the sort of thing that ought to happen. The world ought to... Uh, see what God is doing, uh, ought to hear of what God has done, and again, they'll respond either by being drawn to Jesus or by uh, hating him e even more. Um, but what ought not to happen is for people to remain indifferent. If people around you remain indifferent, that ought to give you pause. What's going on? Am I not as godly as I think I am? Am I hiding my light under a bushel? That sort of thing. But just like God worked through Is Israel, causing some to tremble in horror, causing others to uh, fear the Lord in a saving way. So also today, as God works by his spirit through the church, um, people will take notice and respond. But anyway, verse 15. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. 
Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Cana, Canaan have melted away. Now this is where we clearly see that this is talking about the future. Uh, because it won't be until at least 40-some years uh, when Joshua enters Canaan and drives out the Canaanites. You know, you think about it, Hopefully you're a little bit familiar with sort of the storyline of Scripture. Um, but there's the Exodus. They get across the Red Sea. Uh, they're heading toward the Promised Land, but then they things. They start worshiping the golden calf, and you know all sorts of things happen. And what the Lord says is that this wicked, unbelieving generation, I'm going to let them die in the wilderness, and instead I'm going to uh, let the believer, their, their children and grandchildren and whatnot, they're the ones that are going to take possession of the promised land. You remember all the, with Joshua and Caleb and the 12 spies and the 10 were bad and two were good and they saw the, uh, you know, the Canaanites and they thought they were like giants and whatnot and they lost faith. You remember? I hope you remember the story that I'm talking about. So what Moses is describing here won't take place for another 40 years and yet again it's so certain that he can speak of it in the past tense. And I really wonder, you know, this is a debate that people have about the Bible. Did the prophets themselves uh, know uh, really what they were, what, what, what was going on? Were they speaking better than they knew? There does seem to be an element of that. Um, that, you know, the, it's not as if the prophets were just speaking gibberish, but they even didn't fully comprehend the significance of their own words. You know, I think it's First Peter talks about this, um, that as the prophets prophesied about the Messiah, they didn't fully grasp the time or the location or how all the details are going to come together, and yet since God is inspiring them, they're giving legitimate prophecies that we can study and learn from. So also I wonder, did... Uh, Moses here even fully grasped the significance of what he's saying? Probably not, you know, because again, that's just the way the prophecy works. And yet, at the end of the day, what's more important than Moses' comprehension is the fact that the Spirit is inspiring this, and the fact that Joshua is going to take possession of Canaan and drive out the Canaanites is an accomplished fact, even though it wouldn't take place for 40-some years. Uh, verse 16, Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Again, this won't happen for quite some time. Uh, because again, you know, Israel's going to just wander around kind of like nomads for a good long time. They're, they're not going to, you know, do much of anything. And, and that's something to ponder there. The wilderness wanderings tell us that even so-called wasted time in the providence of God is not actually wasted. Now, I want to be careful there because we shouldn't intentionally waste time. You know, you shouldn't just intentionally sit around, you know, goofing off, watching YouTube all day long and not trying to make the most of every opportunity. Of course, we should try to make the most of every opportunity. And yet, in the sovereignty of God, he can even use so-called wasted time for his good and glorious purposes. He'll teach you lessons. He'll convict you of sin. Uh, maybe, like the people of Israel, he'll chasten you severely uh, just by kind of chilling. Uh, you know, some people, unfortunately, they, they commit some crime and they end up sitting in prison for many years on end and they think they're just wasting their time, but next thing you know, they encounter some prison chaplain or some other believing prisoner, and they, they, the Lord shares the gospel with them, and they come to, come to saving faith that way. The point I'm trying to make is that in the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, there actually aren't wasted years. Even though from our perspective, we can sinfully waste time, uh, God does work all things together for good, including uh, where you, you're, you just feel like you're stuck in detention and not doing anything productive. Anyway, where were we? Terror and dread fall upon them. Again, we're going to see that in the Canaanites, particularly Jericho. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Now pause there. That's an important concept. Um, the Bible looks at what God did in the Exodus as a purchasing of the people of Israel. Uh, the Theological word is redemption. And this is important because it forms a pattern for our redemption in Jesus. 
What's redemption? You know, it's, it's uh, not, a, again, a concept we talk about a whole lot in English, uh, but we still have the idea a little bit in the use of coupons. Uh, you know, if you get this or coupon, depending on where you are and from, you know, where you're from in the country. Uh, if you get a coupon, you take it in and you can redeem it for something. If the coupon says, you know, bring this in for, uh, you know, five free hot dogs or something like that, you redeem these five free hot dogs by giving them this coupon. You following me? Uh, that framework forms part of our understanding of the Exodus, but even more so our redemption by Jesus' blood from death, sin, and the devil. So thinking back about the Exodus, What's going on? They were slaves to a wicked slave master named Pharaoh. God redeems them, purchases them out of that through the plagues, through crushing Pharaoh, and they're freed, and now they belong to God. That framework, again, is applied to us in the New Testament. We were slaves to a slave master far worse than Pharaoh, uh, to death, sin, and the devil. Uh, and, and, you know, as bad as Pharaoh was, and we've seen that he's pretty rotten in, in this book, Satan's even worse. Uh, death is even worse. Sin is even worse. But Jesus pays the price to free us, to purchase us out of our slavery. And that price was his very blood. Uh, again, I think it's First Peter. It says we were redeemed or purchased uh, not by perishable things like gold or silver, but by the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish. It took the blood of God incarnate to buy us out of our slavery. And again, when you get that, you're like, oh my goodness, this is really the most important thing in the universe. Uh, to think that I have been purchased by the blood of God, that's mind-boggling. Um, and yet, again, that's what the Bible teaches. And if you really get this uh, in your system, uh, you will quickly start seeing Christianity as the most important thing in the world. This is something that bothers me. Why is it that so many people are infinitely more interested in the NFL and video games, none of which I'm saying are inherently evil. You know, I enjoy watching football myself, and you know, Saturday, uh, Sunday afternoons we sometimes turn it on. But why is it that most people are infinitely more fascinated by the NFL and Fortnite and Taylor Swift than they are about God? You know, that you tell them about God, and they're just like, you know, you might as well uh, tell me about getting a root canal. But when they start talking about the NFL, all of a sudden their eyes get big and they're all excited and whatnot. Uh, what's going on? Uh, you know, that bothers me, but I do think that part of it is they don't really get fully what what's really going on with Christianity. Christianity is not just uh, Jesus died, rose again, uh, pray the prayer, and you go to heaven. It's so much richer than that. We were literally slaves of death, sin, and the devil, but God in his mercy sent us a Savior who's God incarnate. In this God incarnate, Jesus shed his blood that we might be freed, and now we are freed. Uh, freed from fear of death. We don't need to fear death. Freed from the devil. We don't need to fear, obviously he's there, and he's a pretty nasty enemy, but we don't need to fear him capturing our soul, and we're freed to walk in newness of life. Again, you get that, and sooner or later, Christianity is going to seem a whole lot more amazing and exciting uh, than the NFL or Fortnite or whatever. Uh, so let's pray for ourselves, let's pray for others, that God would open their eyes, that they might see the things of God as infinitely more exciting, glorious, beautiful uh, than the uh, things that the world treasures so much. Again, don't hear me saying that it's sin to you know, watch the Colts or sin to listen to Taylor Swift, you know, if you're into that, which uh, you might be able to guess I'm not so much. I don't know if I could name a single song by her. I just know that she's in the news all the time. Uh, but I'm not saying it's, it's necessarily sin. Uh, but at the end of the day, the things of God, the things of Christianity, the things of the Bible are infinitely more glorious, beautiful, exciting than anything that the world has to offer. Uh, but we just have to like seep in it enough to, to kind of get that. Anyway, let's see if we can finish this up here. I'd, again, I'd like to finish this chapter before the end of today. Um, verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, 
the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. That's probably talking about the Mount of Horeb, which interestingly is the same place that Moses met with the Lord before, you know, way back at the beginning of Exodus. I think it was chapter 3, but the whole burning bush incident takes place there. There is an interesting sort of... uh, circle event here. Moses is at Horeb, he goes down to Egypt, redeems them, comes back to Horeb, and that's where they they have the whole Ten Commandments experience, which we're not going to get into in this particular series, but be that as it may. Uh, The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So that's the end of the sort of the main worship service. Interestingly, there's another worship service coming. We're going to talk about that real quick here. Let me see if I can finish this out. Uh, Bear with me if you would. Verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Sort of re-summarizing what we've already seen. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, we haven't seen Miriam for a good long time, but she was, is Moses' sister. She's the young girl that you'll remember when they put baby Moses in the basket. Uh, the mother pushed the basket out into the Nile, but had uh, his sister Miriam kind of follow along by the shore to kind of see what happened to the baby. Remember this? And then Miriam talks to the Pharaoh's daughter and says, hey, you want me to go find a nurse for this baby? And oh yeah, I got this woman who just so happens to be Moses' mother. Uh, that's this Miriam. So, so we haven't seen her in a while, uh, but evidently she was, you know, kind of a female leader uh, among the uh, congregation of Israel, and you'll see what she does. She leads the people of Israel, not the people, the ladies of Israel in worship, and it seems as if they're probably singing the same song, because if you look, see how it says, sing to the Lord, he has triumphed gloriously. If you jump back to 15.1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Go back to verse 21, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. What seems to be going on here is that Miriam gets the ladies aside, and again, we're talking hundreds of thousands of ladies aside, and leads them in basically the same song. Now, this is something I'd encourage you to think about. Why does it appear as if Miriam sort of segregates them by gender? Um, this is I remember I preached on this passage many years ago, and one of the points I made is that in the Bible you never see females leading uh, mixed-gendered congregations in worship. Now I recognize that's going to sound extraordinarily offensive, because I know that there are churches out there that have female you know, worship leaders, song leaders, whatever. Uh, I challenge you to think through, is that actually consistent with what the Bible teaches about men's and women's roles? As we read the Bible here at Trinity, we do believe that there are distinct roles for men and women. Men are to be the heads of households in families, you know, husbands and fathers. And in the church, it's to be godly males who are to be pastors and elders. Obviously, ladies are precious, made in the image of God, do many essential ministries. You know, virtually no church on the planet would be able to function well uh, without godly involved women. So they're incredibly important. And yet, at the same time, there do seem to be these gender roles, sex roles, that are just sort of, uh, were created to to embrace, and that it's a good thing to embrace. Uh, Again, fathers, husbands being the heads of households, godly men being the elders in churches. With that framework in mind, it does seem as if perhaps worship leading ought to also follow that same pattern. Part of what I think is going on here is that we, I think, have miscategorized singing uh, in church. We tend to think of singing as 
You know, who knows how we think? We, we think of it as like kind of an emotional pick-me-up or something like that. Whereas in the Bible, singing is actually looked at as a form of teaching. I mean, if you look at the Psalms, they're heavy on doctrinal content, heavy on recounting the great works of God. You think about Colossians, Ephesians, what does it say? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, teaching one another. So as we look at Scripture, songs uh, that the people of God sing together actually is a teaching ministry. It's not just you know, kind of this uh, jingle that I sing to make me feel a little bit better. Um, and this is, by the way, one of the big places where how the worldview singing should differ from how the church views singing. You know, the, the worldview singing is almost just, again, uh, insignificant to make me feel good. You, know, you think about you know, the music that they play in restaurants and the, in the mall and whatnot. You know, they're, they're not really trying to teach you something, though honestly in, in, in like, a sub, like a subconscious way they are. Instead, when we talk about the Christian use of singing, it really ought to be a form of teaching. Um, with that in mind, ought then a man be the one leading the church through song, you know, the, the collected congregation in song, if it is a teaching ministry? I tend to think he should. And that's why we have Miriam, a lady, taking the ladies aside. And, you know, if you want to have a ladies gathering and a lady a lead in worship, praise the Lord, nothing wrong with that. We think, you know, ladies can teach other ladies, lady, ladies can teach uh, children and whatnot. But if there are these distinct gender roles of, you know, men being the teachers of a congregation, uh, ought that also to affect the way that we look at worship gatherings and singing gatherings? I'd encourage you to think through this, because again, you cannot identify one place in Scripture where a lady leads, um, you know, I want to be careful here because I don't know, you know, every verse of the Bible by memory, but I'm not thinking of any passages in the Bible uh, where a lady leads men in songs of worship. Are there plenty of worship gatherings in, in the Bible? Yeah, uh, but Without a, you know, again, I'm I'm hesitating because again, there there's probably some passage you know tucked in Second Chronicles that I'm not remembering or something like that. But based on what I'm gathering right now, I can't think of one. If if you can think of one, by all means, leave it leave it in the comment section, and I'll you know concede and, and, and recognize that you know I made a mistake here. But I think that every single instance of the gathered people praising God in song, singing His praises, are led by men. But anyway, check that out. Let's see if we can wrap this up. Verses verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Uh, same name, by the way, in the book of Ruth, when Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, gets real bitter due to what took place. She changes her name to Mara. Same idea. But anyway, the point is, Israel's not very far from Egypt, and quickly you see how fickle they are and how quickly their attitude is turning. Uh, they start complaining. They're like, what's going on here? Again, I think it reflects our heart that you know God can bless us on Sunday and really transform us, encourage us by the sermon, but then on Tuesday all of a sudden we're anxious about this and that, and we're fretting about our kids, and you know, we are, sadly, in the flesh, very fickle people, in a way very similar to the people of Israel, and we ought to become those who quickly repent, quickly recognize how easy it is to complain, uh, but quickly count the blessings that God has given us, especially in Christ. Verse 24, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Was there grumbling? Okay, no. But is God exceedingly gracious and sometimes uh, compensates for our grumbling and gives us what we're seeking? Yes. Uh, so don't think complaining, especially something like this is okay, but God, see instead the exceeding generosity of God. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Uh, now, 
we're almost we're virtually out of time but don't take from this what's called the prosperity gospel. Uh, this is designed, again, to be something unique with the people of Israel. The people of Israel are sort of an earthly type of the spiritual blessings that the church has in Christ. If the people of Israel would obey God, he'd bless them financially, he'd bless them physically, he'd bless them even health-wise. When you transfer that to the New Testament, the New Testament is God's going to bless us spiritually, not necessarily physically. Uh, so can Christians still get colds and flus and whatnot? Of course, and yet uh, we're secure in Christ, and God has given us unspeakable spiritual blessings in Christ. And, and one day we will be resurrected and given resurrection bodies. Uh, but again, don't misread the temporal blessings God gives to earthly Israel in the Old Testament to somehow convey the so-called prosperity gospel. For the sake of time, I won't spend any more time on that. We'll close up with verse 27. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. I think the thing you're supposed to see here is right after what they thought was awful, God had something beautiful and refreshing right around the corner. Um, you know, that's again a pattern you see in Scripture. We humans are so fickle, we're so weak in faith, we think, oh, things could not be worse, when God in his mercy has a huge blessing right around the corner. Uh, you know, you can see this happen again and again and again. What happens with Job? Absolutely horrific. Loses all his kids, is livestock and all of that. And yet if you read the very end of the book of Job, it says emphatically that the Lord blessed Job double what he had at the beginning. Uh, this is how our God works. God often brings us through some bitter waters, uh, but he's got a rich oasis on the other side. Now sometimes that rich oasis is heaven, so don't, you know, again, don't get confused here and think that I'm promising you earthly blessings, but oftentimes, you know, sometimes they are earthly blessings. You know, you might be an awful job now, and, and you know, but you're working away faithfully, trying to love your neighbor, trying to love your coworkers. Uh, maybe God in his providence has a really wonderful job just around the corner, and he's testing you now to see if you'll continue to walk by faith in him, uh, even though th there is something richly blessing coming on the, on the other side. Again, not guaranteed, and again, the, the blessing might be in the life to come. You know, sometimes uh, we're, you know, we're, we're killed in this life, we're killed all the day long, um, but at the same time, God in his mercy uh, often does work this way, that you, know, you might be going through a really dark, tough, difficult time now, but it is in a way a test to see if you'll follow the Lord, even when it's dark and difficult, uh, but in the future, God has got something planned that's exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think. Well, there you go. I, I hourglasses run out of time. Um, that's the end of Exodus 15. Like I said, we're going to pick up in the new year with a different book. How can we pray this back to God? Uh, let's begin by praising God that his faithfulness is so secure that we can think of future events as if they've already taken place. Uh, you know, obviously Jesus hasn't come back yet, uh, but it's so certain that we can look at it almost that way. Uh, you know, so also, you know, with all of God's promises, they're so secure uh, that there's no reason to doubt, no reason to fret. Let's not be, let, let's pray that we're not like the people of Israel who are so fickle uh, that, you know, we're, we're tossed to and fro. Instead, let's pray for a certain faith that's rooted in the faithfulness of God because uh, he can't deny himself. Let's pray and we'll, we'll be done. Father, thank you so much for the joy of studying Exodus this last year. Thank you for what you've said to us through your word. Thank you for the way that your promises are, are sure and certain, so sure and certain that we can look at them as if they've already taken place. Please give us greater faith in your promises so that our faith is not shaken, that we don't turn to anxiety, to worry. Lord, thank you for the way that you worked through Israel to redeem them and to purchase them, and thank you for the way that their earthly redemption pictures our heavenly spiritual redemption in Christ. And we do thank you for the way that by his precious blood he has redeemed us from death, sin, and the devil. Please 
uh, work in our hearts that that might move us to joy, to delight, to, uh, to just wonder that you would uh, do so for sinners like us. Bless now our Christmas season, bless New Year's, uh, give us good times with our family, uh, guard us from sin, help us to love our neighbor, and uh, gather us again in the new year to study your word together. Through Jesus we pray, amen. Thanks so much for tuning in, have a great day.